by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Listeners and a very warm welcome to another episode of Moody's Talks Inside Emerging Markets. I'm your host Rahul Ghosh and I'm coming to you from my home here in the UK. In this podcast series, we aim to make sense of the latest events and developments shaping the prospects for emerging market credit as they unfold. You'll hear Moody's analysts across the globe discuss a wide range of topics, from the easing of coronavirus lockdown restrictions to the growing relevance of sustainable finance, and we'll assess the impact of these developments on emerging market governments companies, banks, and securitizations. And you can find previous episodes of the series at moody's.com forward slash empodcast. Coming up on today's show, global tourism has suffered an unprecedented slump during the coronavirus pandemic amid sweeping restrictions on travel and social interaction. And with holidaymakers are likely to stay away in the coming months, the credit consequences for some emerging markets will be considerable. The first step was to identify those sovereigns where tourism is a significant part of the economy. So we looked at variables like tourism's contribution to GDP or employment or trade. But the credit implications depend not just on how important tourism is to the economy, but also the starting point in terms of credit metrics and the capacity of different sovereigns to adjust to this shock. But first, headquartered in Rio de Janeiro, Vale is one of the world's largest mining enterprises. Given its sizable activities in industrial metals and coal, the Brazilian company is often seen as a bellwether for the commodity sector's prospects in Latin America and also beyond. Earlier this month, Vale was forced to temporarily halt production at one of its largest mining complexes due to the coronavirus, the latest in a series of operational challenges the company has faced in recent years. So for more, I'm joined by Barbara Matos, a senior vice president with our corporate finance team based in Brazil. Thanks so much for joining us today, Barbara. Thank you, Ro, for having me here. So first, can you provide an update on, on just what's happened recently? What operations have been suspended or had been suspended at Vale? And what's the extent of the implications from a credit quality perspective? Sure. Yes, more recently, Vale suspended uh, activities at the Itabira mining complex due to the spread of the coronavirus in the region. Um, although this suspension has been short-lived and it's now revoked, it brings to light the challenges that Vale is facing in its iron operations in Brazil, um, in particular in light of the spread out of the coronavirus in the region and further disruptions that Vale may face in the near future. Actually, Vale considers already a potential negative impact um, of the coronavirus on its operations in about um, 50 million tons, which is 5%, I'd say, of um, the total production volumes that um, Vale expects to produce in 2020. But so far, we have not really seen any material disruptions caused by, by the coronavirus on Vale's operations. Mm-hmm. But the recent so temporary suspension you mentioned, this isn't the first time that Vale has seen some of its operations affected in southeast Brazil. Uh, perhaps you could take a broader view on some of the challenges Vale is facing and, and also uh, perhaps on the health and safety side, some of the risks more generally. 
Yeah, no, uh, that's that's correct, Raul. Um, since the collapse of the Tavins Dam in, in Brumadinho last year, January of 2019, Vale has taken a number of measures um, to fully repair the damage caused by the accident and also to ensure sustainability of the operations in the long run. Uh, because of the Tavins Dam accident, Vale had to suspend about 20% of uh, total production volumes for Idlemore which highlights the challenges the company still faces um, actually to, to regain operational um, stability and be able to return um, operations to full capacity. Even now in 2020, the company still expects similar volumes that are what we, we have seen in 2019. But uh, one thing that is important in that is that um, although there are a number of specific events affecting values operations, such as perhaps technical disruptions, weather-related events, um, now the coronavirus, but uh, the majority of this reduction in volumes really comes from safety reasons related to tailing stamps. So to address those issues, the company implemented what is called a decommissioning or decharacterization program for the dams, um, which, and, and the company is also um, investing in technologies which can reduce the generation of, uh, of tailings in the process. And therefore, it reduces the need for dams to store those tailings. So this is very important, in particular in light of uh, values operational stability in the, in the long run. And of course, um, it has implications in the company's credit quality. And um, it's, of course, directly related to the ability of um, value to continue to generate cash flows from its iron ore operations. You've talked about some of the recent and more medium-term production challenges. I guess one of the silver linings more generally uh, of late has been the recovery in iron ore prices that we've seen. Perhaps just looking ahead, what are some of the signals that you're looking to as indicators that the global industrial metal cycle is returning to a stable footing? Well, indicators that we broadly use for, for base metals and iron ore are pretty much global economic growth and industrial activity indicators. And, and clearly, um, China continues to play a, a critical role as a major consumer of metals. Um, just to give some examples, uh, China accounts for about half of the demand for copper, zinc, uh, and about 70% of the global trade in seaborne iron ore. Um, so for iron ore, steel production in China is key. Uh, the main markets or, or end uses for steel include pretty much infrastructure, construction, automotive industry, appliances. Um, so in the end of the day, we will continue to look for uh, what happens in, in China's economy when we think about demand for Raleigh's iron ore and for the overall mining industry. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today, Barbara. And for our audience, for more on the credit effects of the coronavirus, please do check out our dedicated topic page at moody's.com forward slash coronavirus. Next up, travel restrictions and large-scale quarantines to contain the coronavirus have been severe across the globe. While countries will likely relax these measures gradually, tourism activity will likely remain severely depressed for the rest of this year as consumers remain less willing and able to travel overseas for holidays. For many emerging market economies, a slump in tourism revenue and earnings as we approach the summer months 
will have significant credit implications. For more on this topic, I'm joined by David Rogovich, a Vice President in Moody's Sovereign Group based in New York. Welcome, David. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Rahul. Happy to be here. So we know that tourism has been one of the hardest hit sectors from the coronavirus crisis. Uh, David, perhaps you could describe just how painful the fallout has been and how this time round compares to previous downturns. Sure. Well, you're right. Uh, tourism will be one of the hardest hit sectors. It's being affected by a number of different factors. It's a combination of the lockdown measures and travel restrictions we have in place now, which are preventing travel. Uh, but even when these are lifted and people can travel again, consumers may feel uncomfortable flying or unable to fly because costs have gone up or incomes have come down. And so it's a combination of these factors that will result in a severe decline in, in the tourism sector. To put the current shock in context, during the global financial crisis in 2009, tourist arrivals declined by about 4% and tourism earnings or how much was spent fell by about 9%. The decline that we're expecting this year is likely to be much, much more severe, something more like a natural disaster in terms of impact where in an extreme case or a severe event, it can shut down a country or an economy for a number of months. Uh, only now, instead of talking about one country, we're talking about this type of disruption on a global scale affecting all tourism-reliant economies. Yeah, conditions sound very challenging indeed, David. Talk us through the magnitude of the growth shock that we're expecting from weaker tourism flows. So we're assuming that there's almost no tourism activity that takes place in the second quarter of the year. This is because of the travel restrictions in most countries. And then after that, we expect tourism to remain muted throughout the second half of the year and even possibly beyond into 2021, 2022. What this means is that for most countries, we think tourist arrivals and spending will be down by at least 35 to 50 percent, if not more. To get a sense of how each sovereign is affected, we ran simulations looking at different scenarios for tourism activity and the impact that would have on GDP. The, the results highlight that smaller island economies tend to be most vulnerable to a tourism shock. And in some of the smaller economies, for example, countries like Macau, Belize, Maldives, we're expecting double-digit declines in real GDP growth this year. Okay, so you've talked about some of the real economy effects and potential scenarios, uh, but I wonder how that translates into the credit impact. How have you gone about assessing the sovereigns globally that are most vulnerable from a credit perspective, and which countries have you identified as most susceptible? Well, the first step was to identify those sovereigns where tourism is a significant part of the economy. So we looked at variables like tourism's contribution to GDP or employment or trade. But the credit implications depend not just on how important tourism is to the economy, but also the starting point in terms of credit metrics and the capacity of different sovereigns to adjust to this shock. What our findings show is that there's, the shock will matter most where there's a reliance on tourism combined with weak credit fundamentals to begin with. Countries like Maldives, Bahamas, Belize, St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Montenegro are those identified as most exposed or most vulnerable. These sovereigns in particular share a few common features. One, they tend to be smaller, they tend to rely a lot more on tourism, and they're entering the shock with large current account deficits and already high debt burdens. Okay, thanks, David. Moving on, one trend that you talk about in the report is rising demand for local or regional tourism activity. Uh, to what extent could this trend help mitigate the effects of declining international or long-haul holiday goers? We're expecting different countries to see the tourism industries recover at different speeds, depending on a number of factors. And one of those factors is one that you brought up, uh, shifts in demand for certain types of tourism experiences or tourism products. Uh, to give you just one example, we think domestic tourism is likely to recover more quickly than say long distance international travel. So for some of the European countries like Greece or Portugal, for instance, where domestic tourism can account for 30% of total tourism activity, 
they could see a slightly faster recovery in their tourism industries or tourism sectors. On the other hand, countries like Maldives, Mauritius, uh, Barbados, where domestic tourism is essentially non-existent, they're likely to see a slower recovery as that recovery depends entirely on foreign travelers returning and being comfortable flying again. Thanks very much, David. So, so one of the themes you've talked about here is the exposure of generally smaller and often lower rated emerging market sovereigns. And one thing that we've covered on the podcast previously is how many lower rated smaller EM sovereigns with large external funding risks have been vulnerable in this current crisis. So perhaps you could talk about the slump in tourism and what that means for external liquidity pressures for some of those sovereigns. Yeah, you're exactly right with that point. One of the key transmission mechanisms of the shock is through the balance of payments and external liquidity pressure. For a lot of the countries that we looked at in the report, more than half of all foreign currency earnings come from tourism. And and the sovereigns that we identified as most vulnerable in the report, they tend to run large current account deficits. And so even during good times, they need to attract external financing to cover those deficits. So now, faced with the shock, fewer tourists coming into the country mean less foreign currency coming into the country. And this would actually result in wider current account deficits, creating larger external financing gaps. I think though it's worth pointing out that since the outbreak of the coronavirus and since these economies started to really be affected by, by, by the slump in tourism, we've seen institutions like the IMF and other multilaterals come in and provide a significant amount of external financing to a number of these countries. And these financial flows are an important source of financing at least in the near term, that should mitigate some of the external liquidity pressures that we're talking about. Okay, thanks, David. Perhaps finally, uh, taking a longer term view, the big question for EM watchers for 2021 and beyond is whether tourism trends will eventually normalise once the pandemic subsides, or perhaps on the flip side, whether the crisis will lead a permanent imprint on attitudes towards overseas tourism and travel. Early days, of course, but what are your expectations for the sector longer term? Well, our baseline is that tourism lags the recovery in the broader economy, and the recovery when it does begin will be subdued. Even then, I think there are risks that the tourism sector of many of these sovereigns face a multi-year slump because of changes in consumer behavior when it comes to travel. Especially for those sovereigns where a long-haul flight is required to get there, we think the recovery could take several years. We could see that consumers prefer to stay local or travel to domestic tourist destinations or or geographically closer locations rather rather than taking these long-haul flights. Another risk is that uh, reduced flight capacity or higher prices could both reduce demand for flights and therefore affect the tourism sector for a long period of time. Um, In any of these downside scenarios where tourism is depressed for longer than, than in our baseline, it's the ability to diversify away from tourism that will be a key to preventing a deterioration in credit fundamentals for tourism reliant sovereigns. Okay, well, thank you so much, David. Uh, This has been a fascinating discussion and also touched upon the ways in which the pandemic will shape and perhaps accelerate changes in how consumers and businesses operate beyond lockdowns. To learn more on our global EM views, please do also check out our Emerging Markets in Focus channel. This is our new webinar platform and it features presentations, interviews, panel discussions, Q&A and much, much more. Please go to events.moody's.io forward slash Emerging Markets. But until next time, thanks for joining us.